After the sermon, we'll sing from the same psalm, the last three stanzas, three, four, and five. And the text for the sermon is taken from Psalm 73. The text and the, the theme is from verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I am sure that at one time or another you have experienced injustice in your own life, in the life of a friend or a family member. It's a common occurrence, isn't it? When we look around in the world, we see a lot of injustice. There's a lot of people who get away with murder and robbery and theft. There's a lot of people who just thumb their noses at God and his commandments, and it looks like they get away with it too. And that can really bother us. It really bothered Asaph too. He had a really hard time with this. He saw the injustice in this world. He wondered why God allowed it to happen. He saw that the wicked prosper, the righteous often suffer. And he struggled to get the right perspective on this. And when he was finally able to come to the right perspective, he wrote this psalm. A psalm that also helps us get the right perspective. A psalm that gives us a lot of comfort and assurance. So I've summarized the sermon with this theme, Truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. And we will see that the wrong perspective leads us to doubt this confession, but the right perspective leads us to confirm this confession. So verse 1 of this psalm is really the conclusion of the matter, isn't it? Asaph begins with the perspective that God is good. And he concludes with the same theme. So we know know right from the start, we know where this psalm is going. Asaph believes and confesses that God is good and sovereign. But at the same time, this confession is, you could say also, actually the basis of his difficulty. Because if God is good and God is in control, why are the wicked allowed to thrive? Why are they even allowed to live? Why do they get away with their wickedness? Even worse, why do they prosper? That's a serious question. And Asaph is putting into words with what many of God's people struggle with. The believer knows it's a struggle to maintain his integrity and his honesty, but the wicked just merrily goes on ripping off his neighbor and cheating on his taxes. The Christian struggles to maintain his moral integrity. The wicked just continue to live shamelessly without a care, it seems like, and they brag about it too. They even promote and worship ungodly and immoral lifestyles. Nothing happens. They just continue living. They're even prosperous. And the word that Asaph uses here to indicate the prosperity of the wicked is a word that you've heard before. It's the word shalom, often translated as peace. It means wholeness, completeness. It means that your world is, everything in your world is in the right place. It's the absence of hostility. It describes harmonious relationships. It was also used in the context of well-being, physical well-being and health. So it implied blessing. To an Israelite, Shalom summarized in one word the blessings or the benefits which were promised in God's covenant with his people. 
Shalom summarizes all of God's covenant blessings that would be poured out on the obedient, those who are pure in heart. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 28. There the Lord promised that the faithful Israelite could expect rich blessings. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessing upon blessing was promised to the faithful. And they would not only, could not only expect material blessings, they could expect spiritual blessings as well. The priests were instructed to pronounce the blessing of the Lord upon his people. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. Same word. And the prophets too spoke of peace that would come through the prince of, pre- prince of peace, the Messiah, whose sacrificial death would bring true shalom to God's people. But the wicked could expect God's curse. If you continue reading in Deuteronomy 28, you come across these words. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. So who wouldn't sympathize with Asaph? And seen from the perspective of the Old Testament Israelite, we can understand why he was mystified at the prosperity of the wicked. From his point of view, the covenant blessings of God were being poured out on the wicked, while the righteous received divine discipline. It was as if the covenant promises had been switched around, turned upside down. No wonder he's distressed. And he describes in verses 4 through 12 how the wicked are successful. They even increase in number. They have nothing to worry about. They have no care in the world. Verse 4, they never seem to have any pain. They don't get any diseases. And because of their wealth, they have access to the finest food and drink that money can buy so they can take good care of their bodies and they can be happy and healthy until the day they die. They don't have the kind of trouble as normal folk have. Their work doesn't stress them out, and they're successful in whatever they do. They even boast of ignoring God. After all, he's, he's letting them get away with ignoring his commandments. They boast that God is not strong enough to stop them. In fact, their boasting and bragging makes them so popular, they even gather a following of people. Verse 10. People who also live the good life and want to imitate these wicked men. They even went so far as to say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So they have power and fame. And the more money they have, the more evil they tend to get. And they're not ashamed of flaunting it. And the worst part, congregation, the worst part is that Asaph is not necessarily talking about wicked, unbelieving, non-Israelite people. The psalm is written to and for the people of God. He doesn't indicate in this psalm that he's addressing pagans. In other psalms that he writes, this is clear. For example, Psalm 74, 79, 80, 81, he speaks about the nations. He distinguishes Israel from the nations. That's not the case here. 
And we need to recall that Asaph was one of the chief musicians appointed by King David to serve in the tabernacle, to lead the people in singing as they worshipped. He was a Levite who worked in Jerusalem. And what bothers Asaph is the prosperity of wicked Israelites. And that's understandable. Asaph is is a full-time temple worker, tabernacle worker. He's a full-time musician in the house of God. He's financially supported by the tithes of the Levites, of of the Israelites. But things aren't going well for him. The wicked in Israel are prospering. And he says in verse 14 that he's been treated badly. All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Even though, he writes, that I kept my heart clean and I washed my hands in innocence. Like Asaph is serving God. And they were not. They were just giving lip service to God. While he served the Lord with a pure heart. And yet they prospered and he was suffering. How can that be? And in this situation, he's tempted just to just throw in the towel. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, what's the use of serving the Lord if the wicked are better off than I am? Why should I try so hard to do what is right, even if the hypocrites in the church get God's rewards? The cost of remaining pure just seems too high. But have you noticed, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, have you noticed how Asaph greatly exaggerates the prosperity of the wicked? Is it really true that the wicked never get sick? They never suffer pain, they just die peacefully? Is it really true that the wicked are all prosperous and wealthy? And they always succeed in everything they do? Do do the wicked and ungodly never get divorced? Do unethical millionaires never go broke? Do tyrannical politicians never fall from power? So where does Asaph get this from? Why this one-sided view of the prosperity of the wicked? Well, he gives us the answer himself. Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, Asaph was jealous. And so Asaph only sees what Asaph wants to see. He was envious that the wicked had what he did not have. And the root cause of his problem, congregation, was that he considered the Lord's material blessings more important than his relationship with God. That's worth repeating. He considered the Lord's material blessings more important than his relationship with God. And the catastrophic consequence of his envy is that he almost stumbled. He nearly lost his faith. But then something changed his mind. Something changed his perspective. In verse 16, we see that he has a dramatic change of heart. In the first part of the psalm, we see that human reason led him to this conclusion. This conclusion that his personal piety was, there was no profit in it. So what changed his outlook? Well, to put it very simply, it was worship. Worship changed 
his outlook. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, the end of the wicked. And of course, we have to understand that this was not the very first time that Asaph went into the sanctuary. Right? As a full-time musician, he would have been there often. It was not a change of place that transformed his envy, but rather a change of heart, a change in his perspective. It wasn't until he stopped looking at the prosperity of the wicked that he really saw what was going on in the sanctuary. You see, it's true worship that gives Asaph the right perspective. He turned his attention away from the material wealth of the wicked to the riches proclaimed in the sanctuary of God. And so what did he see there? When he really starts to pay attention, what does he see there? Well, he sees the bulls and the goats being slaughtered. He heard their last cry. He saw the sacrifices burning on the altar. He saw the blood being poured out and the smell of the sacrifices, the smell of the blood collected in the bowls by the priests. And he watched them sprinkle that blood on the sides of the altar. There was, there was blood everywhere in the sprinkling bowl on the hands of the priests. So in this scene, you cannot escape the sight and the smell of blood and the sacrifice. And that reminded the Old Testament Israelite believer that the wages of sin is death, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. It reminded the Old Testament believer of the end of the wicked. Because just as the flames licked up the burnt offering, so God would forever destroy the wicked sinners who do not repent. And you see from verse 18 that Asaph recognizes this. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. They would be destroyed in a moment. The Lord will despise them. They are as nothing to him. That's the same perspective the Apostle Paul gives us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You see, when Asaph really took the time to worship, when he took the time to observe what was happening in the sanctuary, it cured him of his envy. We might be tempted to envy the the present life of luxury and ease that many people have. But who would want to share in the ultimate future condemnation of the wicked? Looking only at the short term, they are an object of envy, but from a long-range view, they are to be pitied. And it's worship for Asaph that brings the prosperity of the wicked into focus, into a proper focus. Worship caused him to view life from an eternal perspective rather than merely an earthly one. Well, congregation, what is our perspective? What's your perspective? The wicked often seem to prosper Many people today also publicly flaunt their immoral lifestyles and their disobedience to the laws of God. And many other people follow them in promoting this. And it's true. Often the wicked and immoral are very wealthy and powerful. And the righteous suffer. We can think of many examples. And in the church too, there are sometimes people who get away with sin and with wicked conduct. There is a lot of injustice in the world. 
And maybe you're struggling with this right now. Maybe you know exactly how Asaph feels when he sees the prosperity of the wicked. But to get the right perspective on this congregation, we must worship God. And what do we find when we worship God? Congregation, the worship of God confronts us with the gospel. And the gospel confronts us with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Worship confronts us with the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the key to getting the right perspective. Because the cross is the epitome of justice and injustice. On the cross, God's justice was satisfied. His wrath against sin was satisfied. But at the same time, the cross represents the greatest injustice this world has ever seen. Because on the cross, the righteous died for the unrighteous, for the wicked. And the wicked and the wealthy and the powerful, they were standing around the foot of the cross, mocking this righteous man who hung there, naked and suffering. And what is even more profound is that this righteous man died for you and me. We too are the wicked. That's what we need to understand. You see, true worship also gives us the right perspective on ourselves. It dissolves false pride and brings us to repentance. That's the perspective that worship brings us to. And we all need that perspective. Asaph was a man who was full of false pride. He was convinced that he was a righteous man, that he was pure in heart, and the prosperous wicked, they needed to be punished. But he was righteous. He deserved to prosper. He deserved shalom. But the reality is that Asaph didn't deserve it any more than anyone else because he too was a sinner. That's clear from his envious attitude. He was not grieved because the wicked were wicked. He was not upset that the wicked did not serve the Lord, but he was grieved because he didn't have what the wicked had. He was merely focused on the material blessings of the covenant. He did not desire God, well, he desired God's blessings more than he desired God. Let me put it that way. He desired God's blessings more than he desired God. And in that way, he was not really any different than the wicked. But then he came to worship. And he was forced to view himself in comparison with God instead of the wicked. Then he could admit that he too was a sinner. In his moments of inner struggle, he was upset and bitter. Senseless and ignorant, he calls himself. He was like an animal. He just had tunnel vision. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast toward you, verse 21 and 22. But worship forces us to see ourselves as God sees us. It forces us to set aside all other comparisons. And when we do that, then our perspective on what is good changes. Then we begin to realize that we don't deserve any of God's material blessings. And we begin to see that our highest good is God alone. And so you could see, as the psalm progresses, you could see how Asaph's change, uh, thinking has radically changed. He begins by complaining about the prosperity of the wicked, and that he, the righteous one, is being punished. 
He believed that suffering is evil, that since God is good, he cannot allow suffering to touch the life of the righteous. He believed that good was somehow intertwined inseparably from material prosperity and physical well-being. But worship teaches Asaph the ultimate good in life is knowing God. And if knowing God is the highest good in this life and in eternity, then we have to conclude that whatever pulls us away from God is evil. Whatever draws us near to God is good. Even if it's suffering. And that has significant consequences for how we view material prosperity and suffering. Asaph came to recognize that prosperity only promoted the wickedness of the ungodly. But it was suffering that caused Asaph to draw near to God. The suffering that he so badly wanted to avoid was actually a blessing. While the success he was looking for was really a curse. And this conclusion was a complete reversal from his previous way of thinking. Well, dear congregation, isn't that something that we all struggle with too? The mentality that God's blessings come in the form of financial success, material abundance, physical and emotional well-being... It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that that these are the greatest blessings we should pray for and expect. And we convince ourselves that a good God doesn't want to withhold these things from us, from people who are pure in heart. Perhaps we even have that kind of perspective on what heaven is. What, What comes to your mind when you think of heaven? Streets? paved with gold, constant light, the absence of sorrow, pain and tears, the absence of hostility and war and violence, and the experience of perfect joy and pleasure. And of course, all of that is true, but it's not the complete picture, is it? In fact, that's a one-sided picture of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. And doesn't that show us then that we're often inclined to even think materialistically in terms of the new heavens and the new earth? But heaven is not just the absence of suffering or the presence of good. Heaven is first and foremost the eternal dwelling of God. And being in heaven is being with God in the presence of God. And worshiping Him. And Psalm 73 highlights this important truth. The psalm teaches us that our ultimate good is God alone. That's what Asaph learned. That's what we need to learn too, congregation. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's Asaph's confession. That's the confession God wanted Asaph to come to. That's God's goal for each of his children, that we too would come to this confession. And then this this should also influence our perspective on suffering. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, 
The Lord teaches us that discipline, that he disciplines us for our good. He sends suffering into our life for our good. And so when we suffer trials in this life, whether it's an injury or an injustice or illness, we have to recognize that suffering is not a denial of God's love. When God sends suffering into our life, he is not telling us that he doesn't love us. But it's a demonstration of his love because in our suffering, he is near to us. And he continuously is with us. He holds our hand. Notice verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Not because I have such strong faith. Not because I am so good at holding on to God. But no, you hold my right hand, Asaph says. The Lord is holding his hand. Our suffering then is a demonstration of God's love because it brings us closer to Him. Suffering also brings us to worship the Lord and to receive the blessings which He has prepared for us when we come near to Him. But whenever we reduce the blessings of God to physical and material well-being, we shortchange ourselves. Then we put ourselves in the same position where Asaph was when he observed the prosperity of the wicked and he was envious of them. And if we begin to think of heaven as prosperity, then we will only think of this life as a life of suffering and trials. However, when we think of heaven as everlasting fellowship with God in uninterrupted intimacy, then we will realize that we can already experience part of heaven here in this life, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And when you have that perspective you're assured that you are never alone and you know that God always holds your right hand. You're never alone in your uncertainty and your doubts, in your crisis of faith or in your ill health because the word of God tells us that he is always near to us. He is the strength of your heart even if your heart is failing, writes the psalmist. And so to have God with you It's far more important than all the physical and material blessings that come with his covenant promises. Meeting God in the sanctuary is of far greater value than gold or silver because it has eternal value. Meeting God in the sanctuary gives you the right perspective. And knowing God ensures your final destiny because knowing God ensures that he will afterward receive you into glory. That's what Asaph believes. That's what we believe too. That's the perspective Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians 1. God does not call us to correct every injustice in the world or to destroy the wicked. That's what he will do when Christ returns on the clouds of heaven. In verse 9 and 10, Paul writes, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Well, what then is our task, congregation, as we look forward to that day? Well, Paul writes about that in his, in his prayer. 
Verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, may that be our prayer too and our desire to be made worthy of God's calling. So that in us, the name of Jesus is glorified. And then we will be vindicated on the last day when God meets out his justice. Amen.